So my thought today was to talk a bit about the process of practice. What are we doing here? (laughs) Is there a goal? And if so, is it something that we should think about? Because those are two different questions. This is from Bhikkhu Inalio. When you're driving to the airport, you're not thinking during the entire drive, when am I going to be at the airport? When am I going to be at the airport? Where's the airport? But you're also not just driving around without any idea of where you want to go. Then who knows where you would end up? So you know that here is inside Santa Cruz, and there's the airport. There are different ways of getting from one place to the other. And sometimes you may lose your way, but there is this overall direction. I'm going to the airport, and that's the point. For your car ride to be fruitful, there has to be some sense of where you want to go. In the same way, for meditation to be fruitful, there needs to be some sense of where we're going. We are going towards freedom of the mind, freedom from defilements, freedom from craving, freedom from dukkha. That's the direction. That's the airport. So there are traditions that claim that there is no goal. There's nothing to do. There's no attainment. That those kinds of thoughts are gaining ideas and not, not relevant to practice. There are also traditions that talk very much about the goal and attainments and getting places. There's a wide range out there. And I think... Are you referring to Buddhist traditions on both ends? Yeah, Buddhist traditions. Yeah. Thank you. And um, this, this quote expresses something like what we offer in our tradition. This may or may not be an actual tradition yet in the West, but it comes from the Theravada tradition. And there's a sense that this, you know, it, it is said there is a goal. And yet, focusing on it is a hindrance to getting there. So it's an art. It's an art to keeping that in mind freedom (laughs) freedom of the mind but um, not getting wrapped up because we don't actually know we don't know right now what that is so it doesn't make sense to wish for it or to think about it in sort of a cognitive way But practice does unfold. It's not that nothing is going to happen if you start meditating. And so I want to talk a little bit about one model that's offered of how practice unfolds. Or maybe I'll just say that another way that traditions approach this is that you're told at the beginning not to think about it much. 
because that's when the mind is not very settled, not very established. And so it's a, it really is a hindrance. And then later, as people developed, because that does happen, then it, then it can become relevant to know a little bit more, refine a little bit more. But I think as long as it's understood that, first of all, what we're talking about is a model. It's not exactly how every mind develops. And also that there are a lot of models offered. That's the nice thing about the Pali tradition, is that if you read the suttas, you read the original early teachings of the Buddha, lots of paths are offered. You can't say there's just one, and this is how it has to be done. And yet, there is admission and understanding that that Nibbāna is the goal. So I'll talk about this one particular model of how practice can unfold when it's done in line with some of the early Buddhist teachings. And those teachings are the ones that I offered this morning in the guided meditation, the practices of direct experience, of feeling the very elemental sensations in the body, seeing the mind as movements of energy. So this direct placing of our awareness in the very raw experience of life, that will tend to produce particular changes in the mind and body. And I'm only going to give a sketch. There's actually fairly detailed laying out of this in some of the texts. But essentially there are some stages. The first one is cleaning up our act in the world. The first stage of meditation is not on the cushion, or it's in parallel with starting to sit on the cushion. So it allows... Changing our ethical conduct is what allows our mind to settle in meditation, actually. The classic example given is if you've just robbed a bank, you're not going to have a good sitting the next sitting. That one's fairly obvious, but we, you know, we know this on our personal level, is that when we sit, things in our heart start to unfold and start to come up, memories or earlier things from life. It's just how the practice works. It's not a mistake. It's not It's not that you shouldn't have done those things and that means you can't meditate now. It doesn't mean any of that. It's just how it works. And so there's this level where we're working with that. And it's very beautiful, very beautiful thing to change the way we speak, the way we act, our care and kindness in the world. That alone would be transformative if everyone did it, wouldn't it? If even one of the five precepts was followed completely, the world would be a different place. So I hope that this isn't seen as somehow a kindergarten step. It's also worth mentioning that the step of changing one's conduct and acting well never really ends. Maybe that one doesn't have an end because there's always new situations that we encounter. 
always new situations where we have to come up with the wise speech. We have to come up with uh, the correct way to act, the appropriate response, as is said sometimes. Um, and that is just ongoing. So this is an act that continues for a long time. But there are other aspects of behavior that change in this step also. It's, it's not only stopping lying and harsh speech and killing and sexual misconduct. There's also um, the more subtle acts that we start doing in the practice, such as um, changing our eating so we don't eat in an unrestrained way, for example. Uh, this is often an issue for people or oversleeping, or undersleeping. You know, we start physically just being in the world in a way that's more balanced and wholesome for ourselves and hence for others. This is from the early teachings. Possessing three qualities, a practitioner is practicing the unmistaken way and has laid the groundwork for the destruction of the taints. That's code for the for the goal, and has laid the groundwork for the destruction of the taints. What three? Here, a practitioner guards the doors of the sense faculties, observes moderation in eating, and is intent on wakefulness. This was written, well, these teachings were offered 2,500 years ago. So, guarding the doors of the sense faculties, you know, that means being careful what we take in. We don't go on a drinking binge or we don't get on the internet and play video games for 17 hours straight like we might have when we were 17 years old. Observes moderation in eating and is intent on wakefulness, so the practice of mindfulness. So we start to understand that what we do with our mind and our body is very important. And then, as this becomes normal for us and we start to meditate more, these other stages talk a little bit more about what happens on the cushion. So the next stage is overcoming the hindrances and gathering the mind. So we know about hindrances, those of us who meditate, those are when we sit and we feel sensual desire. We wish for pleasures. We're sitting, but we want a donut. You know, it's, it's how it is sometimes. It um, doesn't mean we get up and get one, but we can be aware. Oh, okay. There it is, sensual pleasure. Or aversion. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we're going to um, tell off our housemate when we get home about that thing that they really shouldn't have done. And we have a lot of ill will about how they are, and we're going to show them. This is not helping our meditation practice when we're spending our time doing that. So those are kind of greed and aversion type things at the surface of the mind. And then there are hindrances that are related to energy level over excitement. So it's hard to sit because the mind is agitated and worried and restless. Ping pong ball in the brain sometimes. Um, That can happen. Or the opposite, sloth and torpor. Falling asleep, dullness. That happens too. These are hindrances to being fully present and concentrating the mind. And then the fifth hindrance is doubt. 
So we begin to wonder, why, why am I doing this exactly? I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. My mind really isn't set up for this. And besides, these teachings I don't think are the right ones for me. I don't think they really work in the modern world anymore. They were written 2,500 years ago in India. This is a whole different society. It's not going to work. So this is a hindrance, actually. It prevents us from uh, practicing in a way that is sincere. And if we're not practicing sincerely, the results come much harder. So it's not that it's wrong to have these thoughts or that you need to banish them and have blind faith. Instead, they are to be recognized. This is doubt. And at that moment of recognition, that part is not doubtful. You have no doubt that right now you're having doubt. So there's no problem. So we may spend a long time working with the mind, developing some mastery of the mind. And this is where we start to understand that it's really the mind that is what brings the happiness or the suffering in our lives. Yes, it's true that there is outer suffering. I'm not saying that's not true. Aging, illness, and death are certainly real. And some of of that is caused by external. And then there are issues with the job, the house, the relationships. But all these things are just part of human life. They may be suffering or they may not. And we realize, oh, how I am, how I'm responding, how I'm acting, that part is where the real suffering is or not. Sometimes people spend an entire meditation session boiling in anger about how horrible somebody is and how upset they are about them. And then they have a moment where they realize, I just suffered for 45 minutes and that person I hate didn't suffer at all. (laughs) It had no effect on them. (laughs) So we understand that our own mind is what's bringing the difficulty while we're sitting there innocently on the cushion. And so the good news is that your mind is also where the freedom is found. And if somebody is doing something externally, they can't touch that necessarily if we've trained well. So the practice of gathering the mind, gathering it around an intention, having some ability to work with it, We don't have total control over our mind. The thoughts come, the feelings come, the emotions come. I'm not saying that we can get to that point immediately. But there's a long stage of working with this. And there are many auxiliary practices that go with this. Metta practice, um, compassion practice, forgiveness, working out the things in our heart that are still a burden. All of this is about settling the mind, strengthening it, smoothing it, so that we can sit for a long time with ourselves. You may not realize how special it is that you sat for a whole day with yourself. Um, There are many, many people in the world for whom that would be a very difficult task. Not to mention they're not interested, but uh, even sometimes when people are, it's very difficult. Maybe for you it was very difficult at the beginning. I don't know. I I had some hard times with myself. And so there's this practice of gathering the mind. It's it's a stage. It's a a 
one of the images given is a relay chariot where you ride one chariot until the horse is exhausted then you get off and you get on the next chariot I don't think it's quite so linear necessarily they overlap that's one way it's described so as we sit with ourselves and become skilled in that what begins to happen is that the strong personalness of our sitting softens and we begin to see that the body and the mind are like a little bit like what I guided this morning the body is what? (laughs) sensations, pressure, heat, flow tingling, movement when you're sitting in meditation isn't that pretty much what the body is? And it's pretty much what everyone's body is. And you realize, oh, this is what it feels like to have a human body. Yes, there's the particular pain in my knee because of that injury when I was 12. Maybe. (laughs) We don't know, necessarily. So there are particularities of your body, or if you have an illness, of course. But other people have that illness. And so, you know, it starts to be a little bit less about me. And then maybe it's harder to see, but the same thing happens in the mind. Yes, we have our personal story and our issues in our life. Everyone does. Um, And you have your unique set that, that needs to be worked on, and that will be your path to freedom. But every component of it is very impersonal. Anger... Anger is anger. It's heat in the body. It's uh, a contraction in the mind. We start looking at the components of things. They're very similar. This paper is not so much like my skin, but they both have a lot of carbon atoms in them. Nitrogen, oxygen. At some level... It's pretty much the same stuff, just built up in different ways. And so there's a whole phase of practice of coming to understand deeply within our body and our mind how impersonal it can be, even though it's unique. Unique but singular. The way every flower is unique but singular. A whole field of daisies, not one is the same. And yet, they're all flowers. And at this stage, we also see, start to see the arising and passing. We see that nothing is the same. It's all in flux. There's change. Change in the body, change in the mind. Of course, there's change over the course of a day. How many things have you gone through in today? But even from moment to moment, even from sub-moment to sub-moment, a flickering, a shifting, always a unique configuration. This becomes very interesting because if it's all in flux, first of all, that's the basis for hope. If there were something that couldn't change, that would be very sad and it would be a limitation on freedom. And we also begin to wonder Who is this, then? Which part is me, exactly? (coughs) 
No one part can be uniquely me. I can't point to it. So what is this self I'm defending and trying to find and trying to fix? So we begin to notice patterns when we see the change. There's a whole stage that's about conditionality. That's a fancy word for understanding how things give rise to each other and support each other. It's not just that you're hearing a sound. There's a sound right now, and that isn't that's an experience that you could label in meditation, sound or hearing. But it's conditioned by a number of things. For example, I'm producing sound, so there are waves in the air. So there's a medium, the air. Sound is being produced, there's air. You have a functioning ear. If you were deaf, you couldn't hear me. That's another condition. And then a fourth is that uh, you're conscious of that. I could be talking... Maybe it's already happening for some of you. You're busy meditating, and so you don't hear some of what I say, which is fine. It's not that it wasn't there. It's not that your ear wasn't functioning, but you didn't have consciousness at your ear. You weren't paying attention to your ear. Or we're reading a book, and someone walks in the room and says something to us, and we don't hear it. So there's four conditions for hearing. That's it. And we start to understand how this works in a little bit more intricate way. There's conditions for anger to arise. And they may not have to do with, you know, our childhood. That's not what we're analyzing necessarily. The conditions for things to happen are present right there in the moment. And if our childhood is relevant to why we're angry at this moment, it's because there's a thought in this moment about that memory in this moment about that. So we start to understand how things come about, and particularly how suffering comes about. How is there this contraction in my heart? How is there this feeling of oppression in my mind? What is supporting that? This stage is sometimes called purification of doubt. We stop having doubt about why things happen. We don't need to get too focused on figuring it all out, because actually it's more complicated than our little cognitive brain can understand. This is more, I'm talking at an intuitive level, we start to see the interdependence and the conditionality of how life unfolds. And how there can be suffering and how there can be the release of suffering. The heart is built to release itself. That's the beauty of it. It may get lost, like getting to the airport, you forget, (laughs) take the wrong road, or it's closed because there's a mudslide, so you have to take a different road. And, but there's a, when we're tuned into the heart, there's a movement of the heart toward freedom, and we learn to discern that and to trust it. At this point, there may arise beautiful and wonderful meditation experiences. We may feel deep faith, deep peace, joy, equanimity. 
And these are good experiences to have. They support our understanding that practice really does develop, really does unfold. We're not just sitting here twiddling our thumbs. But these experiences can become hindrances when we get attached to them. We want the bliss, then we want the peace, we want the joy, we feel that we've gotten there. Oh, I understand now. All these great things happen when I sit. I must be enlightened. This is a stage in practice. (laughs) And there's a time then when we realize that the path is actually... Freedom is not any particular experience. It can't be, because all of that is conditioned. We've looked at that. (laughs) And we understand that the path is non-clinging. The path is in not holding to what happens. It's more subtle than attaining anything. And so this is why it is somewhat accurate to say there's no attainment. But there is the attainment of (laughs) non-clinging. And so we develop even deeper equanimity, you know, an understanding that whatever is present, that's what it is. (laughs) And our job, and if we try to grasp it or want something different, that's where the suffering is, (laughs) is in the clinging, is in the grasping, the trying. And so again and again, open the hand, learn to open the hand and the heart. At some point, something will let go. We don't do that. We, as in I, with my will, doesn't do that. But there is a release of suffering, and the mind knows that that is possible, that has happened. It's not really an experience. It can't be grasped. That's the first thing we might try to do, is grasp it. It's not really a thing, non-grasping. What is non-grasping? It's not really a thing, but it's, it's not that it doesn't exist either. This is why we can't say that we quite understand Nibbana before we start. And then things change and life goes on. And here we are. We have our body, we have our mind, we have our job, we have our family. But we've seen something that we can't unsee. This is a path of seeing. And what we see changes us. And if you can't unsee that the end of suffering is possible, that will affect how you live. You live differently having seen. And we're much better able to help, to have compassion, to do good work, to support others, having understood directly for ourselves what it is not to have suffering. So compassion comes to fruition with wisdom. 
wisdom and compassion together are said to be the wings to awakening. So we sit and we feel our experience and we notice it and we open the heart and we listen. Deep, deep listening so that we can know what the Buddha knew. For those who prefer a more poetic approach, these lines from T.S. Eliot may be evocative. I don't know what his experience was, but um, he wrote this in Little Gidding. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So the practice changes us. It often changes us in ways that have a broad shape to them that can be described, but their own particular path, who knows? And who knows what it feels like for the stream flowing downhill to the ocean. Maybe we will know if we sit in meditation feeling the stream of our experience. And eventually we get to the airport. And then we can take off. So these are my thoughts on the process of practice. And I I wonder if you have any questions or comments about this or anything, really. Yeah. Some point you spoke about was like what I might call insights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually called the progress of insight. Okay. I I abbreviated the various steps, and, but yes. Yeah. So um, meditating when you're sitting on the cushion and you're focusing on your breath and that and like into the jhanas and you're really focused. I haven't done it, but um, and then the insight. As I understand it, would would be like reflecting afterwards, or does it happen during? Well, concentrating the mind um, is a great condition for insight. It's not the only one. Um, Are you asking 
when the insight occurs. Yeah, I mean, should you, should one take the opportunity to sit and reflect after? Oh, I see. Um, the arising of insight is not a deliberate act, so it will come on its own. That's not to say it's never helpful to reflect in various ways. It's um, sometimes helpful, for instance, to reflect on what seems to be happening in practice and maybe get a sense of what might be useful to do next. Um, If we've had a big insight, there's often a natural period of reflection that helps to integrate that. but the, the deliberate reflective practices are just part of the set of practices like metta or concentration or other things. There are deliberate reflections that can be done and are useful to do. But the type of insight that is progress along the path uh, usually will unfold on its own. I should say that since you've opened that door that the there are three classic insights or realms of, that we have understanding that are maybe useful to know. I've sort of talked about them tangentially through this talk, but you know, they are insight into uh, impermanence, the arising and passing of everything, <laughs> insight into unsatisfactoriness or dukkha, so the sense that the if you've gotten a sense that nothing's quite doing it for you in life, you know, the next sense pleasure is not doing it, my relationships are not doing it, I'm not sure my job is really going to do it for me, um, that's, not, that's not your fault. <laughs> this is actually how it works, is that no particular thing like that can satisfy us forever. And this is a, a profound understanding and then the mind will look for something else. And so that's, for some people, that's an important gateway. For others, it doesn't come up as much. So I'll say each of these says not that you need to try to figure them out, but just as options, it's been observed that there are these three gates. And then the third gate is the gate of not-self, or emptiness, or impersonality. So realizing that they're, um, it's very hard to define... <laughs> me and myself, and therefore it's not as clear why I'm acting on behalf of that so much in the world, or trying to be something, or trying to be an identity. Um, For some, this is a very profound exploration. It's not that you don't exist. It's just that you don't exist like you think you do. Don't worry. You're not disappearing. (laughs) But the practice... The actual practice focuses most... I'll say that often it's emphasized that that first insight into impermanence is the easiest to practice. And so we sit with the flow of changing experience. It's obvious. Does anyone not have a changing experience today? (laughs) So it's... um, And it's brilliant. And I think very sort of a gift of the practice that something so obvious ends up being so profound. You can go all the way noticing change with diligence and with the right kind of attention. It's given to us right there every moment.
in informal practice, I guess as well as formal practice, I'll find myself thinking about meditating mm-hmm. versus, um, why would you say being? So, so if there's a thought, something, there'll be some resistance to it, and more of a pushing away than allowing, and, and allowing it to pass. Do you have any thoughts on this of kind of maybe some qualities of when there's this pushing away versus and allowing? Because mm-hmm. sometimes it just feels like, of course, I don't want to have uh, this quality present in the mind. Right, right. So when we first started tuning, this is an issue when mindfulness gets, um, we get more skilled in mindfulness, is that we suddenly see more of our mind. <laughs> and we, there can be a feeling like, oh no, <laughs> you know, there's, there's all this stuff here. Of course, it was always there. Um, one thing that I find helpful is to um, just n- remember that if I'm seeing it, it's not controlling me at that moment. You know, yes, I don't want there to be this persnickety thought about somebody or something, but the fact that I'm seeing it, I'm safe from it, in a sense, and they're safe from any action I might take. And... It's the hindrances are only hindrances when they're when they've taken over the mind essentially. If we're mindful of them, they're not hindrances because at that moment we are doing meditation. We are seeing what's there. But if you notice that there's resistance to can you give an example of the kind of thing that you would resist in your mind? A lot of time it comes just, for me, it's, uh, maybe even can be resistance itself, uh-huh. um, but anxiety, yeah, worry, okay. um, maybe around a group of people, okay, when so the ego's kind of showing itself. Yeah, so you're and self. And I've, you know, maybe seen this pattern before, coming through and this, trying to maybe a performance in a sense or something that's okay. just not helping. And so then you have a thought of, I don't want this anxiety. I wish this, right. I'm tired of this pattern. I've seen it enough. Right. I wish I were done with this one. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, that's a good time for self-compassion. So um, opening the heart to the... This is one suggestion. So opening the heart to say, wow, I've seen this one a lot. This is a really strong pattern for me. And it's... Um, and it's challenging when it comes. And so, you know, not self-pity, like, oh, poor me, but just realizing this is something that the mind can do, and it's painful, and other people have it too, and uh, I see the suffering of it. Sometimes these things just want to be acknowledged. Wow, you know, I'm really feeling anxious, or even speaking to that part of the mind, wow, you're really feeling uncomfortable in this situation, aren't you? I, I hear that, I feel that. Um, but if you push it away, it just needs to keep telling you that. It's going to keep coming. Yeah, it so. feels that way. It just gets stronger. And then, yeah. And then this loop, and it's like, oh, you know. Uh, so. Yeah. So uh, Adyashanti once said, we think that we resist the things in our mind because they are there, but actually they're there because we resist them. <laughs> so compassion can be helpful. Yeah. Softening the heart, opening the body. Yeah. 
But these strong repetitive patterns, you know, they're very humbling. You know, that the mind just keeps doing that, and I don't know why some are so strong. Mm-hmm. Just how it is. Everyone's got some strong ones. and say, what does it say? This is stupid, it's not going to work, or... Self-hatred. Self-hatred, yeah. So, so self-hatred is a rampant issue in Western society uh, for some reason. And so, sometimes it helps to, to step back one more level. So... For example, I remember someone saying that they had practiced with the following way. Something would happen and they would say, can I love myself for that? And the answer was no. <laughs> and then they would say, well, can I, can I love myself for wanting to love myself? And they might say yes, actually. Um, and if not, then well, can I love myself for wanting to want to love myself? And you just step back until you realize that at some point you're okay with the gesture of your mind toward toward opening, even if it didn't get there. So pull back a couple levels until you can find something where you can rest. Does that help a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. That reminds me, I guess I have in the past, been asked myself, are you willing to do no harm? Uh-huh. That, that diffuses it a little bit, yeah. So these these little phrases that work for us are really great, and of course, because of impermanence, they don't work forever, and they don't work every time. But um, sometimes, even just opening, there's so much wisdom in our own heart if we've been hearing teachings. And I know you've been hearing teachings for a while. So sometimes we can come up with original phrases. Like I had a period where. I don't know where I got this phrase, but it just came into my mind. I said, um, what would I have to let go of to make this easier? When I was struggling with something, this thought would come, what would I have to let go of to make this easier? And usually I could find something that if I would just let go of that, like my expectation or my, my impatience, whatever it was, and if I just thought of one thing that I could soften a little bit. And I don't know why that, you know, I don't know where, I never heard that particular piece of wisdom but it worked for a while, and sometimes it comes up at the right moment. So, you know, we've got a lot of wisdom in our heart. Yeah. Try that one, too, if you want. Yeah. All right. Well, what a lovely day of practice. Thanks to all of you for, for your practice and for coming and for your good questions. May your practice be fruitful. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.